and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Derek C. Angus, MD, MPH, FRCP, about his upcoming talk, Fusing Clinical Care with Clinical Research, the Future of the Randomized Controlled Trial in a Self-Learning Healthcare System, which he will be presenting this February at the 45th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida. Dr. Angus is professor and chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine and serves as the director of CRISMA Center that stands for Clinical Research, Investigation, and Systems Modeling of Acute Illnesses at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I would, number one, like to thank Dr. Angus for taking the time to join us. I think we all have a lot to learn about this upcoming field, so I really appreciate the opportunity. And I wanted to uh, start out by asking Dr. Angus to just give us a brief overview of why we are discussing this. Um, What are the advantages of thinking about this? Um, what were the flaws of the you know old ways of doing clinical research, and we'll go from there, Dr. Angus. Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. Great to be here, and I'm looking forward to giving the talk in uh, Orlando in a couple of months. All right. So the motivation for this, in my mind, is trying to address something that I've seen go on in my entire career, which is the constant tension between those on the one hand who would argue that the top of the evidence tree is the randomized controlled trial or the randomized clinical trial, the RCT, who say that practice should all be based on evidence coming from RCTs. And then on the other hand, when we're taking care of patients, we end up saying there's so many things that we try to do, for which there's no good RCTs to inform the question and to help us out. And so there's this constant tension that there's essentially some sort of failure or a chasm between the RCT as sort of the acme of clinical research and bedside clinical care. Now, there are different reasons why people hate RCTs, (laughs) but they can probably be folded into about four broad problems. Number one, they are incredibly hard, expensive, and slow to do. The reason that's important is it's not just for the people doing them, but that's one of the reasons why there aren't enough. Some of the times we can't inform on clinical practice questions simply because we don't have enough RCTs. I mean, think about after Zygris came out. It was years before a second private shock or second private trial was done. In a way, you'd like to see lots of trials testing all the nuances, but but one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is because it just about brings people to their knees to pull off an RCT. So number one problem, they're expensive, complex to pull off. Number two, you're a guinea pig. People don't always like to be in clinical research. They're suspicious of being in research. They don't like the idea of being allocated 50-50. Part of our inner sense is that we think we can guess what would be best. We want to trust our doctors to make the best decisions for us, and we're uncomfortable about being exposed to a pure 50-50 roll of a random dice. Number three, the trials themselves, even if we pull them off, we get frustrated with the results, and we get frustrated with the results in two ways. 
first of all, we accuse the answers of being too narrow. They carefully select a very specific patient population, and they don't really capture the nuance of what to do at the bedside where the patient may have essentially met the exclusion criteria to the trial or where other things are going on in the patient. And yet, at the same time, we also say the results are too broad. It's a Goldilocks problem. The answer is too narrow and too broad. And by too broad, what I mean is it just gives you a single average treatment effect. And it doesn't really tell you whether every patient could get the same benefit or not. At the end of the day, a patient doesn't have a 6% change in mortality. A patient either lives or dies. And what you want to know is whether this particular patient should get drug X. The fourth problem is related to all of these, and that's even if we get a good trial, it seems to take ages for the information to diffuse into clinical practice. And so then there's this gulf or divide between RCT evidence and modern up-to-date practice. So that's the world that we have sat with for a long time. We have RCTs, we are frustrated with RCTs, RCTs let us down. All right, so upon this background, a new thing has been arising in healthcare, and it's the arise of, or the rise of big data. If you turn on any TV station, especially during like an NFL game or something like that, then you're almost certainly going to see that IBM ad that's running, where it talks about how Big Blue is fixing all of the world's problems. And one of the things it's going to fix is it's going to use all this sophisticated electronic healthcare data to generate personalized decisions for patients. And it's going to help doctors, etc. And that's that's big data. Big data is it's a colloquial term, but it's the combination of these huge, rapidly accumulating data sets combined with fancy algorithms, essentially, to comb across the data and to do things increasingly quickly because of increasingly powerful computers to then essentially give an immediate answer at the bedside on the odds of success with treatment option A versus treatment option B for the patient in front of you. A sort of personalized, immediate, large observational study where the computer searches all the patients that looked similar in the past that got either treatment A or treatment B and works out which one looks best and then says to the doctor, this patient before you, you should try treatment option A. That's sort of the promise of big data. Admittedly, I'm saying it in broad strokes, yes. but, that, but that's sort of the, the essence of what big data hopes to provide. Okay. How would this practically work? I know that uh, in one of the uh, recent editorials that you wrote in JAMA, where you happen to be one of the uh, editors, uh, you wrote about a way to actually embed RCTs into a big data clinical trial system. Sure. Well, so, right. So let me pause for a moment to point out that what I did so far was, first of all, point out why people don't like RCTs. And then I chatted a little bit about there's this new thing called big data that sounds very exciting. But here's a key issue about 
the promise of big data as far as, for example, Big Blue is concerned. What's actually happening, although it's using a lot of fancy new machine learning techniques, what it's essentially doing is a large observational study. And all of us can remember back to medical school when we were learning about why randomized versus do observational studies. And the advantage of randomizing is that it helps provide a balanced distribution between two treatment arms of both the known variables and the unknown variables, things you didn't measure. If you roll the dice, then patients in both arms would nonetheless have both the measured and the unmeasured things be evenly distributed in both arms. And so then if there's any difference between the arms, you can attribute that to the therapy that you gave to one arm and not to the other. When you do big data, as long as all it's doing is just combing across all the prior health records, although it's fancy, at the end of the day, it's still going to struggle to provide what's known as true causal inference with the same strength of inference as one gets from a randomized trial. So the problem with Big Blue is that it's not randomizing. And so it could still be creating the problems that we've seen in the past. For example, the large observational studies of hormone replacement therapy that looked like it was beneficial, but then we did the randomized trials and it wasn't and so on. So it can look fancy and it can comb across thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients, but there could be systematic errors and biases that it can't overcome and that can only be reasonably overcome by randomization. So, the point that I would say is that choosing between randomized trials and big data is a false choice. Mm. What we want to do is take all the good things about big data, these large electronic health records, and take the good things about randomized controlled trials, which is basically the R in the RCT, randomization, and put them together. In other words, we want to think about using the EHR and then inserting into the EHR clinical trial machinery so that we can be doing a randomized trial inside the electronic health record. Well, let me ask you a question about this. It, it sounds uh, very logical, and with the technology we have now, it, uh, with EHR, this sounds like a very timely uh, advancement in our way to do clinical research. I guess the first thing I think about when um, we start talking about putting clinical trial algorithms into the EHR is how would we get consent or do we not get consent? Is it implicit? How, how do you yeah. see that happening? Yeah, right. So let me take a long way to answer that and say a couple of other things first. Sounds good, mind. please. So I'm trying to be like a politician who sort of gives the answer he wants to give. <laughs> the answer to the question he was asked. Let's step back for a second. People have tried to put traditional RCTs into the electronic health record. These are called point-of-care clinical trials. And so what's important about those is that they look like perfectly ordinary RCTs. They're just trying to take advantage of the electronic health record. And so the first example was published in 2011 
and was out of the VA, and it was using what's called a point of care or a clinical moment that you can flag in the electronic health record to set off an alarm for the trial. So, for example, this was an inpatient study uh, where every time a doctor was caring for a diabetic and went to order some sort of insulin regimen, then in the CPOE, in the computerized physician order entry system, it recognized that the doctor was trying to place the order. Mm. And it fired back to the doctor, aha, it looks like you're trying to order an insulin regimen for this patient. We're doing a clinical trial. There's a certain amount of equipoise around different ways, sliding scales, etc. cetera. Uh, we're, we're doing two different strategies for insulin adjustment. Would you and the patient in front of you consider being in this randomized trial? And if so, click here. So it, it was flagging a point of care in the electronic health record, and then it actually nested the whole consenting process in the trial because it said to the doctor, if you're interested, click here, we'll tell you about it, you and the patient. The patient can sign the consent and then the trial will begin. And it's called a point of care clinical trial or a POCCT. But those trials were still, they were using the efficiency of the electronic health record. They were embedding themselves in the electronic health record, but that's all they were doing. Mm -hmm. The trial itself still was just a left arm versus the right arm. And so all the other problems that we started the podcast talking about with RCTs are not fixed by that. All that does is help overcome some of the logistic and cost difficulties. It's still a 50-50 randomization. It's still relatively unsophisticated treatment answers and so forth. There's another kind of new trial design called a platform trial that's being used in most often right now in cancer. The poster child is something called the iSpy2 program. It's taking place in breast cancer. And that is a platform using Bayesian uh, statistics to run what's called an adaptive trial in patients with breast cancer. And it's essentially many, many different phase two trials of all sorts of different strategies for treating breast cancer. And the trial isn't focusing on any particular therapy, but rather is focusing on a particular disease, breast cancer, and is enrolling lots of patients in with breast cancer and then randomizing them to multiple different arms. And it's using what's known as response adaptive randomization, where the odds of being randomized to one arm versus another change over time based on the performance of these arms. So if one arm is doing really well, then more patients will be randomly assigned into that arm. And then when one arm does something called graduates, i.e. it looks like it's so good we want to test it in a phase three trial, it graduates from the platform. Oh. Uh, now, that's a very complicated design. It has only really been used in the experimental pre-approval phase. And it's not even for registration trials. It's just for sort of phase two designs. What we're envisioning is taking point-of-care trials and marrying them to platform trials. In other words, we want to take that very sophisticated design and put all of that inside the electronic health record. 
And that's something we're calling remap, randomized, embedded, multifactorial adaptive platform trials. Remap. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and that's what we're excited about. It's trying to do all the heavy lifting that big data does, but also with randomization. Okay. And I still haven't answered your ethics question. <laughs> Maybe I'll come back to that. Maybe, why don't I give you an example? Yes. The, the first example that is launching, actually, is launching next month is something called Remap Pneumonia. And this is a program designed to enroll patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia that are coming to the ICU. And it's funded in Europe with a huge European Union grant on the FP7 Strategic Awards program. And it, we're now hopeful that it looks like it's uh, hopefully also going to be funded in Australia and New Zealand as well. And we would be happy to launch it in the United States as soon as we can work out a funding mechanism. It doesn't really matter that we keep on adding places because there's no fixed sample size. It's an eternally or perpetually running platform for the study of interventions in severe CAP. And the interventions are multiple. It's related to managing the pathogens, so different antibiotic regimens, including antiviral regimens during epidemics of flu. It's studies of host immunomodulation, beginning off with age-old question of steroids or not. And it's studies of optimal ventilation or organ support. So these three separate domains, pathogen, host immunomodulation, and organ support, are all being tested simultaneously. Furthermore, it's generating estimates based on whether the patients are moderately hypoxic or severely hypoxic and on whether they present in shock or not. In other words, it's trying to get to generating treatment effects that clinicians try to work out what they want at the bedside. So, for example, if you have a patient with pneumonia, and you're worrying about whether you should give them steroids or not, you're going to think about that based on whether they're also in shock or not, because the evidence for steroids in the presence of shock or not is different. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you're also thinking about giving an antiviral, your decision to give an antiviral will depend on whether they're already getting steroids. If I thought the patient had viral pneumonia, I'd be nervous about giving them steroids if I wasn't also giving them an antiviral. I'm giving that example to say that's actually the kind of decision-making we make at the bedside. Yes. We make these complex trade-offs of balancing antibiotics with steroids, with ventilator management, with fluids, etc., etc., etc. We need a strategy that's simultaneously randomizing to all these different treatment options. So we actually are asking simultaneously different questions about antibiotic combinations, steroids, and ventilator support, three separate domains of care with different interventions in each. These are all different combination regimens. It turns out that we're launching the trial with 12 separate regimens. It's basically three different antibiotics combined with two different immunomodulation and two ventilator strategies, so three times two times two and we're generating treatment effects based on the degree of shock and the degree of hypoxia, four separate subgroups. So 
So the trial is actually generating 48 answers <laughs> simultaneously for combinations of antibiotics, steroids, ventilator in patients who present with different degrees of shock and hypoxia. That seems horrendously complicated, and yet I would say to you, that's exactly what you juggle at the bedside. This is why you're frustrated with RCTs, because RCTs don't mimic the complexity of the decisions you make at the bedside. Now, when you have 48 arms, <laughs> or 48 questions, you, you have to do a couple of things. The first, first of all, all the complexity has to sit inside the engine that drives the, the trial, you know, the randomization engine. But you can't have that complexity at the bedside. So the embedding is quite simple. The embedding is at the moment you write antibiotic orders or call for ICU admission orders with suspected cat. That triggers the machinery to say, randomize the patient, and we spit back the ICU admission orders for severe cath. And it's just that each patient will have customized ICU admission orders. So patient number one will get one particular antibiotic, they will or will not get steroids, and they'll be put on a particular event setting. And you just fire it back like an order set, just like getting surgical post-op orders when you're admitted to the ICU. Sure. So in other words, you make what happens at the bedside incredibly simple. All the complexity is hidden inside the trial. That's one, that's the embedding piece mm -hmm. in REMAP. Mm -hmm. uh, the R in REMAP is that it's all randomly assigned. The mm -hmm. M in, in REMAP is that it's multifactorial in that we're, we're testing multiple therapies in different multiple groups, subgroups of patients. The A, the adaptive part in REMAP, is as the trial runs, if one arm is doing better than another, the internal algorithm, the computer that's throwing the dice, continues to assign randomly, but weights the dice so that, or weights the die, so that if, for example, one arm has a 75% probability of being successful, then you'll get a three to one chance of being in that arm. So, this is getting at this issue of why would you want to be in the trial? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, if we're asking questions about therapies that are in practice already, for example, steroids. <laughs> and no one knows what the hell to do with steroids. In this trial, as the trial gains information, each patient will be the beneficiary of all the previously accrued information. The trial is has a memory. And as that as it learns more it uses that knowledge inside the trial to weight the odds of assignment. And then eventually, when it gets to the point that it hits the threshold, that it's so sure that one arm is the best arm, that's just like a stopping rule. At that point, 
it graduates. So we got to the point that we were 99% sure that steroids were better in, for example, patients with a shock and pneumonia. Then we would stop randomizing. The trial algorithm would announce to the Data Safety Monitoring Board, uh, we've declared a winner in this particular question. And that is, in the patients presenting with shock, steroids are superior, it's time to tell the world. In the meantime, if we still don't know the answer about steroids in the non-shock, then in the non-shock group, they would still be getting randomized. But in the shock group, we'd now be saying everyone gets steroids. Got it. So the trial is a platform because it's, it's continually asking new questions. Mm. It can bring in new study arms and new questions over time. It's answering multiple complex questions, but it's constantly favoring the arms that look best, and it's not wasting time uh, enrolling patients in arms that do badly. Furthermore, that also means that patients don't get exposed to the same degree to the risks of badly performing arms. So, for example, when we run simulations of this study, if there really is one therapy better than the other, we learn it faster and fewer people die on the way to getting the answer. That sounds like a huge upside, yeah. Well, let me ask you a question about this. Uh, as you were telling us about how these studies are evolving over real time, in your editorial, you talk about you know these self-learning healthcare systems, these EHRs that are thinking and analyzing this. It makes me want to ask you about that. Uh, if I think one of the principles of randomized clinical trials is that there is no investigator bias. The investigator is blinded. They do not know what's happening. So obviously in this type of a adaptive design, somebody, and I, I guess in this case it's the self-learning HR, is actually looking at all the data. How, yeah. how do you program it to not you know, have learned its investigators' biases? I, yeah, I'm yeah, interested yeah. in that. So that's a really important question. So when I keep on saying that the trial is updating the probabilities, it's a pre-specified statistical model that is automatically populated with the data. Mm -hmm. It's not a person. There's no... Mm -hmm. It's not the Wizard of Oz. Right. Little leaders. Uh, sure. It, what you do is, in simulation ahead of, the, ahead of time, you work out... I don't want to into the statistics. This particular design is all Bayesian. Uh, there's a group in Stanford who are working out how to do these designs with, mm -hmm. with sort of more typical frequentist statistics. But this particular design runs on a Bayesian model. Mm -hmm. and, and the algorithm is generated through something called a Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. And it calculates updates from accruing data. And it's all automated and it's all pre-specified ahead of time so there's no investigator bias playing with the numbers mm -hmm. now of course there's still a data safety and monitoring board and they get to watch the allocation and if something they still have the right to say something really weird is happening we need something to happen which is the same as they do in every possible trial you know they're there to sort of watch the trial in case something unanticipated happens so it still has the same oversight. But in the absence of something weird happening, it will do the updating. And the investigator doesn't do the updating. Uh, we're, we're blinded to that. And then any individual site, it's the usual thing. It, you might think 
wow, it seems like a lot of patients are getting assigned to steroids these days. Maybe steroids really are working. You know, there's always a possibility you could guess that. But chances are, because it's being allocated differently within different subgroups of patients and it's across multiple sites, you probably don't person. No one doctor probably seems sees enough cases to know with any certainty to make guesses about how this about how the study is currently randomizing. Right. That makes sense. Yes, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions about the ethics of big data. I I think personally speaking, I grew up in the t- you know in the times of the book 1984 and Big Brother, you know, this certainly, I, I think it can make, make people, you know, think about that. And we're talking about these, you know, gigantic EHR programs and the way they're being programmed. How do you envision this developing over time? How does one guard against, for example, a particular healthcare system programming in, you know, their own institutional biases, whether that's you know, based on economic form, um, yeah. motivations, you know, pharmaceuticals. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so, so let me start by just talking about the most simple thing about getting consent or not. Yes, um, thank you. So the algorithm, when it's triggered, still has the possibility to include in it that before the treatments are actually activated or anything actually happens to the patient the patient can be asked for informed consent. The point of care trial that I first described had that right up front. I can tell you that when we submitted the pneumonia trial to the Dutch government for IRB review, the Dutch government is actually using something called a delayed consent. We don't actually have that mechanism here. In the United States, we can sometimes have deferred or waiver of consent, but they have something called delayed consent where recognizing that it's an emergency and recognizing that the therapies are already all in existing practice, their view of the comparative effectiveness questions when you have to start the trial in a time-pressured setting is you can start the trial and then get consent afterwards. Other regions may have different views. The trial simply goes through IRB review and gets the level of consenting requirements that are required for those questions in that particular region of the world. And so in that way, it's no different from any other. And the more you can embed the consenting into the EHR, hopefully the more you can streamline it. It's feasible that you could even have the entire consent form be electronic, and people could even sign inside their own health records. And one can imagine in outpatient versions of that, that might actually all happen over a cell phone, for example. So there's no, uh, the, the principles of consent, there's nothing particularly unique about the trial. The actual description of the trial obviously would explain that it's simultaneously randomly assigning to two or three different things, but that we've already uh, written that out, and it's it's a few extra lines of text because you're it's quite a complicated number of interventions, but it's not unmanageable. Now, you then alluded to a slightly broader issue is like could people be manipulating big data for some nefarious reason <laughs> right uh, and or to what extent are people's rights to privacy and so forth protected and i would actually say that almost all of that has nothing to do with WeMap. almost all of that is already the world we live in with these huge electronic data sets, there's already huge concerns about privacy, who owns the data, right to the data, 
what boundaries are there between quality improvement analyses for their own marketing advantages versus purely thinking about one patient at a time. That's an interesting debate, but it's larger than remap. Mm-hmm. And I would say that remap will benefit from the progress made in the ethical handling of all these large data sets. There's nothing particularly unique in that regard about remap. I personally think that the increasing digitization, because so much of the world is digital and so much of the lay public are already expressing opinions about who owns their data in other spaces. Chances are healthcare will simply bend to many of the same social pressures that other data sets, such as your shopping habits at Target or Amazon, (laughs) will, will sort of bend to sort of consumer rights and so forth. I would say my concerns are only the generic concerns that are already being addressed about overall access to and management of healthcare data. Mm -hmm. Striking the right balance between the data being accessible enough to healthcare researchers and healthcare administrators so they can make smart decisions about patients versus being too accessible so that they're not used by people who have no rights to see it. Sure. I do think that this is an area that we will probably have to think more about because just to extrapolate from what you you had said, so for example, the learnings from these very complicated embedded trials, that collective wisdom is going to be a gigantic data set. And I'm assuming that, for example, is going to be part of a particular EHR product. So how does one actually separate out the conclusions because it, it, it's, it's essentially going to be part of that EHR's database. So what does that mean about you know, managing people using the conclusions derived from that data set? Does that particular EHR own that treatment algorithm? How yeah, so that's, so that's very interesting. So, so <laughs> Right? So... If you were one large healthcare system and you were deciding to run your own remap inside, say, a big 20-bed hospital system, then that hospital system would be learning. So, for example, let's say you decided that you were worried about C. diff and people were throwing their hands up in the air about a bunch of things that could affect C. diff. Choice of stress, also prophylaxis, choice of infection control measures, antibiotic prescribing behaviors, etc. And so you had a whole remap around sort of infection control management to prevent C. diff. And you were deciding that some people would get H2 blockers and other people would get uh, miprazole. And at the same time, some people would be on antibiotic crop rotation or trying to selectively not use antibiotics that probably encourage more C. diff. And then you even had sort of different infection control procedures where it was the whole ICU versus individual cases. I could go on and on. How often did you do rectal swabs? All that sort of stuff. That that would be sort of making this up as I go along, but that could all be in a remap for sort of C. diff management. Yes, that institute would be benefiting from an accelerated path to learn as fast as possible the optimal strategy. Right. And then I would say to you, 
in the same way as that same institute in the absence of remap would be trying its level best but with less sophisticated tools to also try to learn. It would be doing little quality improvement projects, it would be doing before and after projects, people would would be reading the literature and saying, I think we should just do it this way. I think, we, you know, you, you would just have things being done the way it's normally being done. I would argue that healthcare systems always want to be learning healthcare systems. All this does is make them more efficient and faster learning systems. Would they want to then advertise that they're a better place to come to because they are managing uncertainty more efficiently and maximizing the likelihood that you would be getting the best possible care, I would say I'm sure they would want to do that. <laughs> That's just the same way they already tried to do that with the U.S. News and World Report and with, <laughs> the, Medicare, with the Medicare Compare Program. I, I mean, hospitals have been worrying about how to hang outside their front door some advertisement about how they're the best uh, since they were first invented. And I would say that everyone engaged in providing healthcare is worried about how to promote quality. And, you know, this is America. People want to both do high quality and then shout about it from the rooftops. Why not try to give them a tool to make them, to accelerate the, the path towards higher quality? Oh, there, there's no doubt in my mind that this is an extremely powerful tool. I, I, I personally feel like you know, many more discussions will have to be had, and you know, we'll see how, uh, yeah, so see how the majority decides to go forward in terms of distributing this type of knowledge. Is this something that is going to be the intellectual property of, for example, your particular HR? I, I, I will definitely look forward to the uh, yeah, upcoming who, who discussions. I, yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying. I think you know, U.S. healthcare has a long history of trying to sort of commercialize things. Uh, <laughs> Um, that's sort of understandable. Um, I, I don't see this as any different from anything mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and I'd actually also say, for example, if you look in a field like cancer, especially cancers for which there's a lot of angst about the right way to treat them, like sort of glioblastoma multiforme, there's already a culture where everyone wants every patient in a trial. In other words, there is already the sense that the outcomes are intolerably poor. And cancer centers advertise that if you come here, you'll be in the latest treatment protocol. So the big cancer centers like MD Anderson, Dana-Farber, you go there and you almost expect to be in a randomized trial. I would argue that although when we're managing patients in the ICU, we might not tend to think of our outcomes as being as dismal as, say, glioblastoma multiforme. We can still embrace that there's work to be done and that it would be nice to envision having even better outcomes. And so this, there's nothing wrong in my mind with providers of healthcare adopting the philosophy that it can always be better tomorrow and the path to tomorrow is a absolute 100 mile an hour dash to try to generate best evidence as fast as possible. That if there's knowledge to be gained, there's rarely ever an instance 
where gaining it slowly is better than gaining it quickly. Oh, absolutely. Of course. I, I would just like to see us having some, you know, fair way of distributing this. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think this has been an extremely interesting discussion. And I think... I love you saying that I'm interrupting you because... <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I love that you said fair. I do think, uh, yes, I, I would not like to see people feeling like they can protect access to the information. Mm. That I completely agree mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. That, that you want everyone to benefit from the knowledge and to benefit from it instantaneously. Well, I, I, I think this is just all, you know, food for thought. It's, it's been extremely illuminating for me to actually hear you, you know, expound on this and explain it for the rest of us. And I think for the uh, sake of time, we are going to call an end to this podcast. But I really would like to thank you, Dr. Ingus, for joining us again. It's, it's been great. And those of you who are planning on going to the SCCM Congress uh, in Orlando, please do go hear Dr. Ingus's talk and go ask more questions at the end. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Ludwig Lenn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.